Amen. Praise God for his goodness. Man of sorrows. I should be the one full of sorrow, right? But he took his, our sorrow upon himself. If you would turn your Bibles to Genesis 48, continuing in our study there of Genesis, coming near the end. And we saw last week, uh, now that uh, the people of Israel, or, you know, Jacob and his uh, children, are down in, 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 in Egypt now. But what we saw last week is that though they are out of the promised land, though there is a famine going on, though the world around them are being crushed under the weight of their circumstances, God is faithful in famine. God is faithful in famine. We saw last week, uh, Genesis 47, 27, it tells us that God made them fruitful and multiplied them greatly. And so we trace that last week all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant given uh, in Genesis 12 that God told Abraham, I will make you uh, a great nation. And then he goes on to say, I'll make your offspring as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And here we are in Genesis 47, some, uh, just two generations later with uh, Jacob, they are being fruitful and they are multiplying greatly in the midst of this famine, in the most unlikely of times. Again, as the world around them are just being crushed under this famine, God's people, by God's grace and God's wisdom, are flourishing. So that's what we saw last week. And so Jacob, no doubt, had his faith encouraged by this. He, he, he trusted God. And so what we see him do is begin to base his life on the fulfillment of God's future promises. And so what I mean by that is, I keep wanting to use the word unfulfilled promises, but I, I realize that that's not really the best way of saying uh, things when talking about God's promises. So I might have an unfulfilled promise, like my wife tells me to, you know, take out the garbage, and then four hours later it's still there. That's an unfulfilled promise when I said I'll do it. God, on the other hand, when he makes a promise, it's not an unfulfilled promise, it's a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise. Am I right? It is a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise because it is sure to come to pass. And Jacob begins to live that way. As though they are not unfulfilled in the sense that they may or may not be fulfilled, but they are yet to be fulfilled because it is sure that it will be so. And we see there at the end of chapter 47 that we studied last week, he, he lives this way by saying, hey, don't bury me down here in Egypt where we're, where we're strangely flourishing. Don't bury me down here. D bury me back in the land of my fathers. Bury me in the promised land. And again, at this point, it's only the promised land. It is not yet their land, right? It is only the promised land because they, he's living on this promise that God says, I will give you uh, this land but they have not yet taken possession of it. In fact, it will be quite a long time, another, uh, I think, 400 years before they take possession um, of this land. So, Jacob shows, I believe that they, these are not unfulfilled promises, but yet to be fulfilled promises. So, I want my body to be placed in the land that will, in fact, one day be Hours. And so that was the example we saw of him living by faith rather than by sight. And so uh, I should ask now, who did their homework? 
You remember our homework from last week? I see you, brother. Yeah, you did your homework. Uh, <laughs> you're probably talking about your schoolwork, but that's okay. I gave you homework um, last week, and what that homework was, and we're going to kind of hit it again, what that homework was is find one yet-to-be-fulfilled promise of God. So God has already fulfilled many, many promises, by the way. But find one yet-to-be-fulfilled promise, and then meditate on that promise. Study that promise and see how that should affect your life now. How you should live differently now because that promise is sure to be true, sure to be fulfilled. And so if you haven't done that homework yet, I'm going to be a generous professor and give you an extension. You have one more week. Actually, I hope the rest of your life, by the way, uh, just becomes a practice of doing that, on meditating on the promises of God, the, the past fulfilled ones that we can cling to, and the yet-to-be-fulfilled ones that we can live in light of as our great hope. So we come to this week, Genesis 48, and we're going, going to see yet another example of Jacob living this way, living by faith. Uh, but then we're going to draw some new implications, an added dimension that we didn't talk about last week. And that will be uh, the emphasis here. But I, I want you to know what's going on because this, this stuff is also historically important for why Israel looks the way they do. The nation of Israel looks the way they do uh, many years later when they leave in the Exodus and when they do take possession of the land. Much of that wouldn't make sense without chapter 48. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work through all of that today, and uh, God will, will help us, I, I, I trust. So let's, let's read it together. Genesis 48, not a super long chapter, so hopefully you can hang with me. So uh, verse uh, 1 says, after this, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, that's 47. Uh, he was already, like Jacob already knew that he was coming to the end of his life, so he made Joseph promise to bury him in the promised land. And so some time has passed, and it says, after this. So that's where we're picking up. Verse 1, after this. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took, he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that's Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, he's now speaking to Joseph again, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons who's, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. 
Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be, be great. Nevertheless, His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. That is chapter 48. That is God's word. That's what we'll study. That's how we'll see him living by faith, and we'll see this new added dimension for this week. So let's pray together and ask God to help us uh, right now. Father God, we come to you now as people who... Um, I I trust the large majority of us have believed in the name of your Son. We've been regenerated. We've been transformed from an old creature to a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand. And so, God, I beg you right now to help us not to waste our lives walking by sight rather than by faith. God, help us not to live in the flesh, but in the spirit. And those all sound spiritual. And and, uh, God, what I mean is help us to live as though your promises that are yet to be fulfilled surely will be fulfilled. God, let us not bank our lives on things that are temporal, on things that are shakable, but on the firm foundation of you and your promises, God. And may all of this be a pleasing sight in your eyes. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. So we saw last week, once again, in in 47, chapter 47, that Jacob was seeing God fulfilling his past promises, and that helped his faith to trust in God's yet-to-be-fulfilled promises and so he was acting on that in his normal life. And he makes Joseph promise to take his body back to the promised land, which they did not yet possess, but that they surely would possess if God were worthy of trust. 
But now what we're going to see is another act of faith by Jacob that are, that are in the future promises of God, the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. And this is, um, my little clicker is not working, by the way. I don't know if you can get me to point one, two, thank you. Yep, there we go. Thank you very much. Um, so, here, here's, here's this next act of faith. Number one, Jacob blesses by faith. And we're going to spend some time here because we need to understand not only that principle that he blesses by faith, but we need to understand what's going on here in Genesis 48. So Jacob blesses by faith. Last week, he made preparations for his burial by faith. This week, he is blessing uh, by faith. So what's happening? What, what do we just see? I, I'm not going to reread the whole thing. But to kind of give you a summary of what's taking place in Genesis 48 is Jacob, that is Israel, Jacob is giving the blessing of the firstborn, okay? That's what happens in Genesis 48. Jacob is giving the blessing of the firstborn. And if you've been studying Genesis with us um, over these past couple years, um, you know that the blessing of the firstborn is very important for them, not only for people in that uh land, you know, in that time, uh, but especially for the covenant people of God, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and, and so forth. The blessing of the firstborn was incredibly significant because for everyone it meant that they would lead the family and even that they would get a double blessing. That was just common in their culture, but it also meant that they would uh, be carrying the covenant promises of God. And so that's what's going on here is Jacob is giving uh, this blessing of the firstborn. And so you have Joseph come in, and, and you have Ephraim and Manasseh, and you say, wait a second, J Jacob's firstborn wasn't in the room. How was he giving the blessing of the firstborn? Well, who, who was Jacob's firstborn son? Anyone? Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. Now, the problem is, Jacob evidently does not feel that Reuben is, is worthy of carrying this uh, honor or this status of the firstborn blessing. <clears throat> you say, well, why is that? Why would he not give the blessing to, the, to the firstborn, his firstborn son? Well, Genesis 35, 22 says this, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben, so Jacob lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Uh, it's a bit of a scandal that we kind of passed over, you know, uh, we, like a, we read it and we kind of mentioned it back then, but it didn't really have implications until now. So Reuben, uh, uh, we'll say, how about this, Jacob or Israel had a total of, I guess you could say, four wives. He's got uh, Leah, Rachel, and then uh, Bilhah, and I can't think of the other one. Anyways, Bilhah is, is, uh, is one of those, and Reuben... So it's not his biological mother, but it is the wife of his father. Reuben uh, lay with Bilhah, it says. I guess I'll use the same wording as the Bible. He lay with Bilhah, um, and Israel heard of it. Okay, so what, what, how is that significant? Well, Genesis 49, so this is the next chapter, that not, not, not the chapter we're studying this week, but the next chapter, uh, Jacob will give the blessing to all the rest of his sons. And here's what he says about Reuben. Verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Well, there you go. My son and my first fruits and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. 
unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So there you go. Uh, Jacob makes it plain. Here is the reason that you are not getting the blessing of the firstborn. You were born preeminent. You were born with this power, but you shall not be preeminent because you went up to your father's bed. You, you lay with one of your father's uh, wives or concubine, whatever, uh, with Bilhah there. And so this passes on. You say, okay, well, then it passes on to, to the next born child, right? Well, the next born child is Simeon, but Again, Jacob didn't feel Simeon was worthy of this uh, uh, role of being carrying on the firstborn, the blessing of the firstborn. You might remember back in Genesis 34, uh, Simeon's sister Dinah was defiled by a man in the city. Defiled meaning, again, she was... Uh, anyway, we'll just use, use the word there. Uh, Dinah was defiled by a man in the city. His name was Shechem and the city was Shechem, so that's kind of confusing. Uh, but anyway... She is defiled by Shechem. And so here is how uh, the sons respond. Simeon and Levi, these two brothers of, of Dinah, went and killed every single male of the city. Every individual male, not single as in they're not married. Every single male in that city, they killed. That's how they responded to the defiling of Dinah. And we talked about it then, but this punishment was not just. There was no justice in this. Because they, they, they killed every single male. They, they poured it out on the wrong people. Only Shechem had done the wrong. And in addition to that, the punishment was way out of proportion. They killed all these men when only one man des uh, deserved the punishment. So we see their rage. We see their lack of justice. And for that, here is what Jacob says. Again in Genesis 49, when he's blessing the other brothers. Genesis 49, 5-7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their, are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. They also killed animals. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And so Simeon evidently here has again shown himself unworthy of carrying on the name, of be, carrying on that blessing of the firstborn. And so, who does the blessing go to? Now this is where it gets slightly confusing, but I'll, I'll just say it to you in the most simple terms possible. Okay, Joseph, his uh, second to last born, only Benjamin is younger, Joseph will receive the blessing of the firstborn, but he will bless Joseph through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Does that make sense? So he's blessing Joseph. Joseph is the one getting the blessing of the firstborn, but rather than putting that blessing just on Joseph, he says, hey, you have these two sons. I'm going to give them each a full share of the blessing, and that will in turn be a double blessing, the double blessing of the firstborn, the preeminence of uh, the, the firstborn will be what these two children have. And so we see that in verse 5, he adopts them so that he can bless them. Verse 5, and now your two sons, this is 48 verse 5, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. 
Ephraim and, and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Do you see how he do, did that? At Reuben and Simeon, they would have been the natural uh, heirs of this firstborn uh, blessing. But I am now going to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh as my own, these two sons who were born to you before he ever came down into Egypt. And then we see that he, that he is doing this, though, uh, for the sake of Joseph. Look at verse uh, 15. I remember the first time I read through this, I said, that doesn't make sense. We're, we'll read verses 15 and 16. It, it kind of confused me, but now, now I understand it, and I'll, I'll try to help you as well. It says, and he, that's Jacob, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Do you, do you see what's weird about verses 15 and 16? Uh, Moses, our, our narrator, here who wrote Genesis, says, then he blessed Joseph. But what's missing in, ver, uh, in, in the blessing? Joseph. Joseph is not mentioned. The only thing, ones that are mentioned there is the brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. It says, bless the boys, plural, the children, the offspring of Joseph. And let, the, or sorry, in them let my name be carried on. And so that's why I say it is Joseph that's receiving this blessing of the firstborn but it's actually being given through, or to, I guess, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so this, this is significant, again, for making sense for some of the things that you'll see later um, in the Old Testament. Because you say, okay, wait a second. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And, and you, you think about that. All through the Bible, it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's made up of the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. But, okay, so he, J Jacob himself had 12 sons, and now he's adopted two, and that gives us 14. You now have 14. Where in the Bible does it talk about the 14 tribes of Israel? It doesn't. It, doesn't, it never talks about the 14 tribes of Israel. So, so how, do, how do we have this? In fact, anytime it lists the tribes of Israel, it never lists more than uh, 12, at least in a sense. And we'll, we'll see uh, why that is. Number one... Joseph is never listed uh, as, as a tribe of Israel. He's not. Now it's Ephraim and Manasseh that, that are listed in his stead. Have you ever thought about that, that there's no tribe of Joseph? I mean, he's the whole reason, you know, that they lived here uh, and that, that they come out and, you know, then they go into the promised land. But then there's no tribe of Joseph. There's no allotment to, uh, to Joseph. Well, that is because Ephraim and Manasseh received that uh, allotment. Well, okay, <clears throat> you still have 13 though, right? You take out Joseph and, and leave Ephraim and Manasseh, you still have 13. Well, here are the other ways it's worked out in the Bible. First, uh, sometimes, and actually very often, it calls them the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. So think about that. The half-tribe of Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh, both of those are actually now equaling the full tribe of Joseph, who received the double blessing. Does that make sense? You, you have these two half-tribes, so they are now uh, equaling one tribe under the heading of Joseph. And they will each receive an allotment of the land, uh, but they are both representing 
uh, simply the, the tribe of Joseph, which again never gets that title, the tribe of Joseph. And then another way this is worked out, because you got to remember 12 was a very significant number for them. 12 is the number of completion, of, of perfection, and that's why there's these 12 tribes and uh, later the 12 uh, uh, disciples, apostles. Anyway, another way that this is worked out and wh- how there are only lists of 12 is uh, later the tribe of Levi is, is left out from the allotments of the land. Okay, so Levi becomes, the, the, the Levites, you might think of, the Levites become the priestly tribe. And rather than receiving just one allotment of land, one big chunk of land, they get cities in every single one of the chunks of land. And so you have Ephraim and Manasseh, you have Joseph is no longer in, and you have Levi no longer in the list, and Ephraim and Manasseh come in. And that's how you end up with the 12 tribes, 12 allotments of land. Again, that you may have never thought of that. You may um, never care, but um, th- these are one of those things that people will say, oh, well, that's inconsistent. No, this is, it, it was, this is how it worked out. This is how it worked out. He adopts these two sons in, in the name of Joseph, and they are now the half-tribes, and then again, as far as allotment of land goes, Levi, uh, the tribe of Levi, does not get an allotment, a big chunk allotment of land. So that's why you'll, you'll see it that way, written that way, uh, later in the Old Testament. That's how we get the half-tribes. Okay, so that's what's going on. But here's what's really important. I, again, I don't ever want to just skip to uh, these things. We need to know what's going on. But what's important is we need to notice that Jacob's blessing, this blessing of the firstborn, was based on and shaped by uh, these yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. It was based on and shaped by, that is, the content of them was shaped by the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. So we see that it's based on it. So he's, he's, uh, Joseph is coming in. And this blessing of the firstborn is going to take place. And this is how uh, Jacob begins talking. We see in uh, verse 3. So Joseph has come in and brought his sons. In verse 3, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And we see that's the basis. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So what, it, what, it was, what he's saying is, okay, Here's what God did to me. Here's the promise God gave me. It's the same promise God had given to his fathers, right? Isaac had received, received that promise. And before that, Abraham had received uh, those very same promises. And now he's saying, I'm taking these children as mine, and I'm going to be giving them the blessing based on the promises of God, the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. And then we see that his uh, blessing is shaped by the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. You think about the, the Abrahamic covenant. It has basically three or four parts, depending on how you want to think of it. Uh, first, you have uh, the, the blessing, I will bless you. Then you have a nation with, with a land, like uh, I'll, I'll make you a great nation, and later he makes it more explicit, I will give you this land. Um, and then, yeah, I guess that's, that's, 
three of them. You have the, the uh, offspring. I guess I didn't mention that one. The, the, the I will bless you and multiply you. Um, <clears throat> the, so the offspring that becomes a nation that's blessed in a land. That's, that's what the Abrahamic covenant is made up of. It also includes that you will be a blessing and through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Uh, so that's another aspect that we're just not going to be um, working through today. But here is what Jacob says. Let, let's listen to, uh, to, to verses uh, 15 and 16 or read verses 15 and 16 and see how the content of this blessing is shaped by this promise. It says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Okay, remember one of the Abrahamic promises? I will bless you. I will bless you. So he's saying that, bless the boys. God, he's saying, God, bless the boys. Then it goes on. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. That's the, I'll, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. And as we saw last week in, in verse 27 of 47, that's already starting to be fulfilled, but they're not yet a nation, right? They're, they're now in the hundreds, uh, but they're not yet um, in the hundreds of thousands, which they will be uh, when they leave. So he, he's, he's putting this this blessing on them. May God um, grow you into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This blessing is based on the yet-to-be-fulfilled promise of, the, um, of God. Then verse 20, listen to this, I, I love this. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. So think about that. This is becoming, uh, or he says, this will become a saying. Hey, God bless you as Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how blessed they will be, that people will look at them and say, you know what, I, I wish that you were blessed the way that Ephraim and Manasseh are. So again, you see that promise that uh, is part of the firstborn blessing, that they will be so blessed, abundantly blessed. So he's, he's conferring that upon them. And then we see finally the land. The, the, this promise of the land, verse 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to, to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So he says kind of two things there. This is, again, a part of this blessing to Joseph, which is also to the sons. But he says, God will be with you. Not might be, not hopefully will be. God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. That's speaking of the promised land. Then he adds this, just to kind of put more fuel to the fire. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now they have left, right? And they've actually at this point been down in Egypt for 17 years. Chances are that land that he took from the Amorites with the sword and with the bow is no longer like considered Jacob's land, right? He's been gone for 17 years. Surely that has become re-inhabited, that new people. Maybe the Amorites came back and, and retook it, you know, after they left. But he's saying, even though we're not there right now, even though other people are inhabiting there right now, I give that to you. 
Now that would be kind of a, a silly uh, offering, a silly gift, a silly blessing. You know, it'd be like me, me saying, um, I'm going to give, I, I give to you Sonny's car. <laughs> it's like, but that's not yours. How can you give it, right? I'm not really going to do that, Sonny, by the way. You're welcome. Uh, but jo- Jacob is so sure of the possession of the land that he says, I give you this area, this, this exceptional land that, that I took with the sword and the bow. It will be yours based on the yet to be fulfilled promises of God. You see the blessing. You see the multiplication. You see the land. So he based his uh, he based this blessing of the firstborn on the covenant promises of God. God came to me at Luz, right? That's, that's where he wrestled with God. And then, then he also shapes the blessing. You'll be multiplied. You'll be blessed. You'll have this land. He is living, acting on the promises of God. All of these blessings would be ridiculous if God did not surely fulfill his promises. This is Jacob walking by faith. And again, this may seem small to you, but the blessing of the firstborn was no small thing to them. You remember uh, Jacob and Esau kind of like fighting over this blessing of the firstborn. This was important. You remember uh, Ishmael being like upset at Isaac, uh, right? Because he didn't get the blessing of the firstborn. That's Abraham's uh, sons uh, being upset at him and laughing at him. Uh, the text said, and, and Ishmael is cast away because of it, because he was so angry about not getting this blessing of the firstborn. So we might think this is a light thing, but this is a very big deal. Jacob walking by faith. And I would also add, uh, and I'm not going to say much about it, but he is following this pattern and certainly the direction of God to bless Ephraim as the very firstborn, or whatever you want to say, rather than Manasseh, even though Manasseh was the truly firstborn. And that was just following God's pattern, and I would again say prompting, although the Bible doesn't like tell us directly that he told him to do it, but his pattern that Jacob was the younger. Esau was born before Jacob, yet God uh, blessed Jacob, or you could say Isaac blessed Jacob. And same for um, Isaac. Isaac was the younger brother. Ishmael was older than him, yet he got the blessing of the firstborn. It just shows God's sovereign ability to bless who he wants and to work out his plan of salvation through whom he wants. And all of that is being passed on through Jacob's faith. He is walking in faith rather than by sight. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You say, I have faith. Well, faith is not just uh, walking and just, you know, responding to, to life normally. No, no. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you say, what do you mean, things hoped for? Well, Romans 8, 24 and 25, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience so that idea of faith is 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 based in what is hoped for that that's saying i can't see it yet i I don't know how god is going to fulfill it in fact it seems unlikely that that this would just naturally happen happen but i believe god will do it anyways i hope for it i believe in it even though i can't see it and that has to be true with you and i as well 
the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. That's the whole idea. Is they're, they're not yet fulfilled. That, but we've got to believe they are true. We, we went through kind of a, a list of, of promises last week um, that are yet to be fulfilled. One uh, we, we could think of is uh, God says that he will reward us based on our actions in this life. Uh, you know, our, our faithful actions in this life. God will reward us, right? Store up treasures in heaven uh, is, is kind of the idea there. But oftentimes in this life, when we act in faith rather than by sight, it costs us. You say, well, that doesn't feel like reward, right? But the fact is, that's a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise. There, there's a day where that reward will be conferred upon us. There's a day and an eternity through which we get to experience that reward. But that's only hoped for, right? But faith is the assurance in what is hoped for. It says there, 11.1, Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore... I live not for today, but for eternity. I, I live not for the reward of the moment, but the reward that lasts for eternity, that's unfading, un, undefiled, that's kept for you in heaven, Peter says. And that's the question, though, and that's, that's where we were last week. Are we living as though God's yet-to-be-fulfilled promises surely will be fulfilled? Or are we just walking by sight? As though what's here, what we can see, what we can feel, taste, touch, right here, right now, is all that is true. It will have implications on your life. You will uh, follow what you believe. You will act on what you believe. But that's, that's, we already talked about that last week, but now we've seen what's going on there in 48, and we've seen that again as an act of faith. But now what we'll see in number two, which I still, oh, yeah, I, they worked that time. There we go. Here's number two. Active faith is worship. This is the dimension I want to add for you this week. When you act on your faith, active faith, when you live as though God's yet-to-be-fulfilled promises surely will be fulfilled, it is an act of worship to God. It is an act of worship to God. It is pleasing to God to live by faith. Well, how do you know that, and why would you bring that in on this text? Okay, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, right? Where it lists, by faith, uh, you know, Abraham did this. By faith, I, Isaac did this. Here we come with Jacob. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty one, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. That's, that's 40, chapter 48, Genesis 48. But it says this after that, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So it just makes it explicit that, that while he's doing this, he, he is bowing over the head of his staff in worship to God as, as he is conferring these blessings that are based on and shaped by the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. This was an act of worship. This was saying, God, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you will do what you said you will do. This was an act of worship. Absolutely an act of worship from, from Joseph, or Jacob, rather, sorry. I mean, we, we need to think about this a little bit. So, uh, 
Genesis is written in Hebrew, so uh, we're not worrying about that at the moment, but where we hear that it's worship is, is there in the book of Hebrews, which is written in Greek. That could not have been more confusing. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the book of Hebrews in the New Testament was written in Greek, and the word for worship is proskuneo, proskuneo. The word that we derive from that is prostrate, okay? You think about what prostrate is. I'd do it, but I'd be covered by this uh, podium. That is to lay down flat on the ground, face on the earth, in front of someone. And what, what, that, what prostrating is, is to say, I'm, I'm humbling myself before you. You are high and lifted up. You are exalted. I'm going to lay down face in the dirt before you. Dirty my clothes before you, because that's what I deserve. That is, that is my state. That is my place in front of you, in front of who you are. That's what this idea of worship is, proskuneo, I prostrate myself below you. But this word is, is used not just of physically laying on the ground, it is the action of the heart to say, I am low before you and you are exalted. You are so high that I deserve to lay down in your presence. That is the idea of worship. And you think of even our word worship, worth-ship. To worship shows the worth of someone or something. And we are, are worshiping creatures. It's what we do with our lives. You understand that? Whatever it is that you bow down before, whatever it is that you serve, whatever it is you spend all your time, your devotion, your affections on, your money on, that is what you worship. The things that you live in light of, that is what you worship. And I'm telling you that if we live in light of God, if we live in light of the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God, it shows His worth. When you base your life on the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God, you show the trustworthiness of God, that He is worthy of your trust, right? Think about it. If I were to make a promise to you, uh, hey, uh, I'll come pick you up for church this morning. I'll, I'll, I'll be there, at, you know, um, whatever, 10 o'clock. I'll come pick you up. But then I get to your house and you're not there. And then I was just like, whatever, I'll go to the church. I get to go to the church and you're here. And you're like, well, I walked. I went ahead and just walked because I didn't know whether or not you'd pick me up. Well, what would that say about me? Well, that evidently means that Pastor Jeff is not trustworthy, that you can't depend on him. But on the other hand, Again, with us, when we orient our lives, when we wait on the Lord, when we act on the, His promises, when we do all these things, we say, I trust you. I can stand out there and know that you will be there to pick me up. Again, using, I might be mixing examples here, but you know what I mean. It shows the worth of God. Each time you live by faith in the promises of God, you are showing that you believe him to be trustworthy to fulfill those promises. Each time you stick out your neck in faith, you're showing that you believe God will take care of you in the way he sees fit. Each time you abstain from sin, you're showing that you believe God is more to be desired than the br brief pleasures that that sin might bring. Each time you choose to actively Obey the positive commands of God. That is the do's. Go therefore, do this, be this. Each time you obey the positive commands of God, you're showing that God is worthy of obedience now, no matter what it may cost you. And you believe he can do these things through you. And that is worship. That is bowing down before him, humbling ourselves to show his exalted position. 
And the fact is, no matter what Satan tells you, no matter what your flesh tells you, God is worthy. God is the greatest. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is worthy to be trust, trusted. Revelations 4.11 says, Worthy, O you, are." our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created the logic there is so simple think about this friends you are worthy of all worship and honor and power you are worthy of all these things why because you created everything and by your will they existed and so the logic is anything good or worthy of praise down here at the creature level is only derived from God. We, we, we are only recipients. Anything beautiful, anything lovely that you see is only derived from God. Therefore, if the creature has anything lovely or beautiful or, or enjoyable about it, then the creator must be that much better because without him, those reflections couldn't even exist. That's, that's the logic of, of uh, Revelation 4.11. You, you, are, you are worthy. You're the one that's worthy of glory and honor and power because by you, everything here exists. The problem is, uh, because of sin, Romans 1.25 says, We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what we do. That's what we do each time we say, Okay, God says this, but eh, I don't know if I can believe it. I don't know if I can act on that. That's what we do each and every time we say, okay, God is supposed to be the, the desire of my soul, the, the, what brings my satisfaction, but I kind of want to do this thing that he calls sinful. We might even say, you know what, God's told me to do this, but that, that seems uncomfortable. That doesn't seem best for me. I, I don't really want to do active things to store up treasure in heaven. I don't really want to do kingdom work. And so I'll live for here and now, not living based off the, 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 the promises of God. And so you're worshiping other things. You worship the here and now. You worship yourself. You worship your own comfort. You worship your own pleasure. But again, flip that around. It says, bowing in worship over the head of Asaph. He, 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 he acted on this. He blessed the sons of Joseph. And we can do the same thing. Living by faith in the promises of God. We get to please God. I was thinking about this. There's at least three dimensions to this. And I'll, I'll close right after this. Three dimensions to living a, a life of worship to God. First, you have the vertical dimension, right? Vertically, worshiping God, showing his worth, living as though he's trustworthy, living as though he's all satisfying, pleases God. Have you ever thought about that? So, so often, I mean, this, I'm telling you from the heart, in my own life, my theology can often become so sterile. That is, it has no life to it because I forget about the relationship with God, this love relationship with God. You think about the Pharisees, they obeyed his commands, right? But they didn't love him. They, they didn't love him. They just did it because they're supposed to. They did it for others to see them and praise him. But when we obey the commands of God, when we live by faith in God, we get to please our Father who has loved us, who has sent His Son into this world to redeem us, who is our satisfaction, who is our joy, who is worthy of our worship. And that should motivate us. We love because He first loved us. 
God, you have done so much for me in relationship, not as though I'm a, a science project, not as though I'm so far separate, but you, you want to relate to me. You want to, to bring me in as a father. You want to spend time with me. You think about uh, the father and the prodigal son. He doesn't say, oh, good, you're back. All right, get back to work. He says, no, let's throw a party. Let's spend time together. Let's break bread. Let's kill the fatted calf and eat it together and enjoy one another. And that's how it's supposed to be with us. I'll tell you, our sin grieves God. He's a relational God, not just a God of law. Oh, there's another time he messed up. No, it grieves his heart. But walking by faith pleases him. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You've got to believe those things, that he exists, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. God should be our, our primary focus in, in, in this worshipful faith, this acts of faith that is, these acts of faith that are worship. But I'll tell you, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. There's, there's, horizontal, uh, there's a horizontal dimension. The people around us will benefit from seeing our worshipful faith. I think about J Joseph seeing this, and I think about Ephraim and Manasseh seeing this. I mean, they would be impacted. He, he, remember, he based these, this blessing on the, the yet-to-be-fulfilled uh, promises of God. And then he shaped his blessing by the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. And he did this in their presence, and they would have all known about it, and it would have hopefully strengthened their own faith. And we think about verses that say, you know, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There is a horizontal dimension. Live by faith. Live by faith. Do these good deeds before other people and it will impact them. So do you want to do the best thing for your family? Live by faith, not by sight. Live based on the promises of God. Do you want to love your neighbor as yourself? Live by faith. Show them that God is worthy of worship. That, that's what this is. God is worthy of your faith. God is worthy of living in light of his promises. Do you want to love your enemies and bless those who curse you? Then live by faith. Believing that God is who, all who he says he is and will do all he says he will do. But then there is finally one, one more dimension. There's the vertical dimension, us and God pleasing him rather than grieving him. And uh, then there's the horizontal, those around us. But then there's the internal dimension. Jesus tells us in John, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life there is zoe. This is a spiritual, a deep life. This is uh, not just talking about alive like a flower is alive. That's a different Greek word. This is zoe. This is this, this abundant life. Jesus uh, says again in John 15, we spent a lot of time on this uh, back at the beginning of last year. John 15, 10 and 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Worship God by faith. That's the title of, of, of this sermon, Worship by Faith. We, we, we wonder how to worship. Well, okay, I'll worship God just by singing a song. 
Look, that song is just as empty as all the sacrifices the Israelites made while they were apostate. Right? They were just still making sacrifices to God, but then they'd go over here and they'd make sacrifices to all these other gods. <clears throat> our songs, our giving of money, our attending church, our uh, attending small groups, whatever, all of that is empty if it is not fueled by faith. But if all these things, all of our life is fueled by faith, it is worship to God. And you can think about that. I mean, seriously, don't, don't feel weird about it. That when you do something by faith, you refrain from some sin or, or live in such a way as that though God's promises are true, you can say, this is pleasing to God. This is good for those around me. This is good for me even because it's worship to God. It shows his worth. It shows his value. And this is the thing we were created for. This is the primary meaning of being image bearers of God, reflectors of his glory. But God, help us not to just live by sight. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, again, as I mentioned last week, you've just given us so many examples of your trustworthiness. So many examples of you saying you would do something and it seems crazy, but then you come through. And God, we, we look to these promises that are yet to be fulfilled and they seem so far off. They seem intangible, but God, help them to feel just as real as the, the ground beneath us, the pew underneath uh, my friends here. Help them to be just as real because they're from you. They are your promises. They are not unfulfilled, but yet to be fulfilled. And God, maybe orient all of our lives based on these things. God, may our moral life be shaped by it. May we abstain from sin and live to righteousness based on your yet-to-be-fulfilled promises. Certainly based on the promises you've already fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his cleansing work, but also based on the future promises, the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises. God, I pray that you would help us in our family lives to live as though your promises will come true, Lord. The ways we spend our time, the ways we spend our money, whether for selfish reasons or for kingdom work, Lord, let us take into account worship, showing your worth. And God, even our affections, help our affections to be turned to you, to be filled with deep gratitude, to be filled with deep longing to have more of you, to thirst as a deer, thirst for water, God, Help us, help us to not be deluded by just seeing the here and now, but to, to live and walk by faith in things that assuredly will take place. All this I pray in your son's holy name. Amen.